Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome again to Grace Bible Church. It's always wonderful to be here with the saints as we gather to worship Christ and have fellowship with one another. Well, today we are continuing our hour study through Ephesians. We've made our way to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, as we continue through the five commands, the five commands which descri- describe the worthy walk of the believer. And these five walk commands shape the final three chapters of Ephesians. And today we will see what it means to walk in love. My prayer is that today's sermon will help you see the sacrificial love of Christ for us and will encourage you to live a life of sacrificial love for God and for others. I hope you will see this morning that love is an action more than it's a feeling. R.C. Sproul says this in the New Testament, love is more of a verb than a noun. It, is, it has more to do with acting than with feeling. The call to love is not so much a call to a certain state of feeling as it is to a quality of action, end quote. It has been said that love is not only something you feel, it is something that you do. Well, let me pray for the sermon, and then I'm going to read Ephesians 5, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for our time of singing, time of worship and song and in reading of your word and in prayer. Father, pray for the sermon this morning. Pray that you would empower it through your Holy Spirit. Father, give the folks here ears to hear. Father, give me the voice your voice, not my own, to preach this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, I'm going to read through verse 5. Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know with certainty, that no immoral man or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In 1569 in Holland, a man named Dirk Willemsen was condemned to death by the government because of his belief in Christ. As the authorities closed in to capture and arrest him, he narrowly made his escape. After his getaway, he was actively pursued across a frozen lake by an officer of the law. 
It happened to be in late, late in the winter, therefore the ice became unstable. It trembled and cracked beneath his feet as he ran from his pursuer. Thankfully, he reached the safety of the distant shore. The officer was not so fortunate. The ice gave way beneath him, and, and he sank into the ice-cold water, crying out for help. Unfortunately, there were none to hear him. That is, except for the fugitive fleeing from him, from him for his life. Having heard his cries for help, and true to his Christian convictions, Willemson returned. He crossed the quaking and dangerous ice at the peril of his life and extended his hand to his enemy and saved him from certain death. As you might expect, after this incident, the officer was thankful that his life had been saved and wanted to avoid the responsibility of sacrificing the man who had saved his life. But the authorities commanded that he be arrested. And on May 16th of that same year, Willemson, Dirk Willemson, was horrendously burned to death for his belief in Christ. As such, Willemson traded his own life for that of his enemy. Very graphic trade there, you might see. Brethren, even the most honest unbeliever would struggle to turn around in that situation. Who would have known? No one was around. He was already under the threat of his life for his Christian beliefs. He had every reason to, to ignore that dying man's cries and to keep running. But what made him turn around? I dare say it was love. Love made him go back. Love made him make that sacrifice. It was his love for God and his love for his neighbor. Now you may say, well, that neighborly, that officer wasn't being too neighborly, right? He, he was wrong to arrest him for his belief in Christ. But Christ's call to us is to show sacrificial, the sacrificial love of Christ toward everyone whom we meet. Now, we can't know for certain, but the man he saved may have turned to Christ. And because of, because of his courageous and loving act, he may have gone on to preach the gospel to many. We don't know. But we do know that God has a plan. And we do know that we are called to love others and to live courageously for the sake of Christ. The Apostle Paul exhorted the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14. He says this, Be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. You clearly see these things modeled in the life of this man, Dirk Willenson. As you know, we've made our way to Ephesians chapter 5 where we have arrived at the third of five walk statements or commands. The final three chapters of Ephesians are structured around these commands which form, which form the worthy walk. In chapter 4 verse 1 through 16, we saw that we are called to walk worthy. This is the general call for the Christian 
to walk in humility and gentleness, preserving the unity of the Spirit. We are called to walk or show patience and tolerance for one another in love. Second walk command we saw in chapter 4, verse 17. We are commanded negatively not to walk as the unsaved Gentiles. They walk in the futility of their minds. They are excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance. Therefore, they had given themselves over to sensuality and the lust of the flesh. So we're not to walk in that way. Thirdly, we're called, in our current passage, we're called to walk in love according to God's perfect design. Here we're going to see that God has designed us to walk in love. It's according to the original design. We'll see that this morning. This means that we are called to imitate Christ as our beloved children and to look to Christ as our example of what it means to walk in sacrificial love. The fourth walk command we'll see in chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. We're called to walk as children of light. 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light, and in, them, in Him there is no darkness at all. The Apostle John also said that the light of Christ shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. We are called, church, we are called to be lights in the darkness as children of God. Then we'll see the fifth walk command, which is we are called to walk in wisdom. In chapter 5, verses 15 through 6, 9, in that passage, we're gonna, we are called to walk according to the wisdom of God. We must avoid foolishness, and our relationships should reflect our love of God and others. Now, we should, re, we should recall that we are called to these things because we're now in Christ. Paul taught this incredible truth in Ephesians 1. According to Paul in Ephesians 1.4, if you're truly a Christian, you have been saved by the plan of the Father from before the foundation of the world. According to uh, chapter 1, verse 7, He has saved you through the shed blood of Christ at the cross who purchased us back from the slave market of sin. And according to chapter 1, verse 13, we, we have been sealed. You have been sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit. And you have been placed in the church, which is the body of Christ. And as the church, which is the body of Christ, we fully represent our head, who is Christ. As such, we have been given the power, the very power of God, to do His will on earth. Accordingly, we have been given the mandate to go and make disciples of the nations and to teach Him all that He has teach them all that He has commanded. Also, according to Paul, in Ephesians 1:10 or 2.10, that is, we have been made into a new man. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We represent a new creation which is to come. We are representatives of the conquering king. We are called to herald the victory of this king, King Jesus. And as his representatives, church, we are called to live according to his law, the law of Christ. But what we have to understand is this is not some burdensome law which we, are, which we cannot follow, but a law of love, which can be summed up by the love of God and the love of neighbor. We are to obey the law of Christ because He loves us. Jerry Bridges says this, We obey God's law not to be loved, but we obey because we are loved in Christ. End quote. 
Jesus himself said, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Beloved, the law of Christ is easy, but it's not permissive. Make sure you understand that. The law of Christ is easy, but it's not permissive. It is easy when we are weak because Christ is strong. It is easy because He produces the fruit of love within us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul declared, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, we see, again, we see the language of a new creation. You are a new creation in Christ if you are in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Christ has called us then to live according to His ways, but He has also given us the power to do so. He never commands us to do anything that He wants to, us to do on our own. Therefore, every command in the law of Christ is a call to faith. We live a life of faith. And it's through faith, that faith, that God supplies the Spirit of Christ. And through the Spirit, we produce the fruit of love. And through love, we fulfill the law of Christ. Therefore, if you trust Him, if you fully trust Him, you will fulfill the, His law of love. Now, I want you to keep these things in mind as we look at our verses this morning. In our passage this morning, considering all that He has taught in the letter, up until this point, Paul has two principal priorities which sum up the Christian walk of love. First, you are to mirror God by walking in love. Second, you are to meditate on Christ, who is our example. Let's look at the first point. You are to mirror God by walking in love. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Back when Angie and I first became believers, we would go to a small group study. In this group, we met weekly to study through the entire Bible in seven years. It was an incredible time of learning for both of us. We had a Bible study lesson which had a series of questions about the chapters we were studying. A question in our study, uh, if we did a study on Ephesians 5.1, might be something like, explain what verse 1 means. In the case of 5.1, my wife, who can be straight to the point, would have said, at that time, she would have said, well, it means be imitators of God as beloved children. And she's just straight to the point, right? That's what the text says. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Our small group leader would have appreciated that answer because it is clear that that is what we are being called to do. And I dare say, I dare say that we would be in a much better place if more Christians had my wife's attitude of taking things at face value. We are called... Therefore, to be imitators of God as beloved children. But having said that, I think I need to make some further comment on this verse. Paul starts his new section with the word therefore. The question is, what is the therefore therefore? As we saw earlier, this is the third of five walk commands which give structure to these final three chapters. This word signifies Paul's third application from the first three chapters. Let's make sure we understand that Paul has taught these incredible truths from, the ch from chapters 1 through 3, and now he's applying those truths to the Christian walk. I would also argue 
that this third command builds on the first two, especially the second where Paul told them not to walk as the Gentiles walk. In other words, Paul is saying that they have taken off the old person who walked like the Gentiles, and they have put on a new person, a new creation. I also want to point out that the third command concluded in chapter 4, verse 32, ended with a reminder that God in Christ has forgiven them of their transgressions. He has shown kindness and compassion and grace toward them in Christ. Paul reminds them of God's forgiveness to motivate them to be kind and compassionate and gracious to one another. Now in 5.1, he tells them to become imitators of God, who forgave them, who forgave them and saved them because of his great love. Look at your text. Paul says, therefore, be. Now I need to make a comment on this translation. The, the NASB and most translations use the word be. Now, we didn't have time to look at this last week, but Paul actually uses the exact same word here that he used in chapter 4, verse 32. In chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another. In both 4.32 and in 5.1, he actually uses a word that implies that we are to become. To become. To become something that they are not at the present time. So, they are acting in one way, and he's saying, no, don't act in that way, act in this way. You're acting in a way that is is congruent with who you used to be, who you once were, now you need to act in a way that is congruent or, or or, or reflects who you are now. Now, I have to say, most English translations don't reflect that nuance. The New English translation has a little footnote, actually, that says this word could be translated become. But I want you to know that that is the idea here. He's telling them that you are acting a certain way in the present, that you need to start acting a different way. Back in 432, he was indicating that they were not presently being kind and gracious to one Therefore, he reminds them of the grace that they had received in Christ. Now in 5.1, he tells them to become imitators of God by walking in love. This indicates that they needed to become something that they were not. Obviously, we all fall sin and fall short of the glory of God. But our call is to become in action what we are in position. Do you understand that? We have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Therefore, we ought to act like that. back at your text. Paul says we are to become imitators. The Greek word Paul uses is mimetes, which, and I usually don't give you the Greek word, but I, I am in this case because, because it closely resembles our English word mimic. Mimetes is the, is the word. Mimic is the English word. This word could be used of one who impersonates. In the bad sense, it could be used of an imposter. It could even take the meaning of a counterfeit. Clearly, clearly, in this context, though, Paul uses this word in a good sense. We are to imitate the goodness and love of God who sent His only begotten Son to bear our sins on the cross of Calvary. We are to imitate that sacrificial love. <clears throat> I 
to make the connection back to Genesis 1, 26-28, where Moses writes in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. In those verses, we see that God created man in his image and his likeness for the purpose of ruling over the earth and all that it contains. In the original creation, we were made to be like God. In his image, that is. And likeness. Now He has made us as a church. He has made us into a new creation, which points back to that old creation, but more importantly, most importantly, points forward to a new creation ruled by our Lord Jesus. This creation is characterized by love and truth because Christ is full of grace and truth. That's what John said. We saw even a couple of weeks ago, Zechariah 8, that this new kingdom will be based on truth. For now, the image of God, though, in man is distorted because of sin. I do want to point out another interesting connection to Genesis 3, just after the sin of of the man and the woman. In Genesis 3, 6, the man and the woman ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and after after God told them not to eat from it. Then in verse 7, this is Genesis 3, 7, the text says this. It's very interesting. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then he says in verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Presumably, based on that text, there was a time when Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. In other words, they had an intimate relationship with him. But this intimacy was lost when man and woman, when the man and woman rebelled against God. Their rebellion put enmity between God and man and put enmity between man and man. This enmity, this war, persists even to today outside of the grace of God. But now in in Christ, this intimacy has been restored by Uh, through His blood, through the blood of the cross. So when Paul calls, this is the connection we need to make. When Paul calls for the Christian to walk in love, he is calling us to walk according to our original design. We were created to know God intimately. To know Him intimately. We were also created to have intimate relationships with one another Get this, without fear. Without fear. How many relationships do you have in your life that you can have without fear? Fear of what they might think of you. Fear of what they might do to you if they know the truth about you. You see, both our relationship with God and our relationships with one another have been Restored by the blood of the cross. Perfect love cast out all fear. That's what John says. 
We have been made, look at your text, and back in Ephesians 5, beloved children of God. We have received so much love from God that we should feel secure in Him. Because, therefore, we have no reason to fear. In Christ, no matter what happens, we can have a sweet contentment which comes from the knowing, from knowing that we are beloved children of God. No matter what we're going through in life, no matter what you're facing right now, no matter what is happening, nothing can change that we, as Christians, are His beloved children. No matter what you are going through as an individual, nothing can change that you are His beloved child. This reminds me of Romans 8.35. Romans 8, the great chapter. Paul writes, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, this is Paul's capstone for i am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord beloved of god children of god this is the great promise that we have in christ isn't it, isn't it tragic when this security is stripped away by believing that our salvation is not, not secure in Christ? I don't know how you can read, I don't know how you can read that, those verses and not come away with the understanding that our salvation is secure because we have been saved by grace, not by our works, and it is God's grace that keeps us saved. If we can't save ourselves, we aren't going to keep ourselves saved either. Having said this, we find something quite tragic about the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Here in Ephesians 5, Paul called them to walk in love as beloved children. In Revelation 2, our Lord had this to say about the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But then he says this in verse 4. Now think about this in terms of Ephesians 5. He says this, But I have this against you, but you've left your first love. They have left, in Revelation 2, they have left their first love, their love for Christ. Beloved, to be a Christian, we must love the Lord Jesus. John 14, 21 says, He who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. 
It goes on in verse 23. He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear, which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. O oh, church, be careful. Be careful not to lose your love for the Lord Jesus. Yes, yes, we must love the truth. We must walk in the truth. We must proclaim the truth. We must love the truth. But never forget, never forget that the truth points to loving our Lord, that the truth points to loving our neighbor as ourselves. Never forget that we're to love the Lord with all our being. Never forget that He commands us to obey Him in love. Never forget that He desires for us to love one another with the sacrificial love of Christ. Leads us to the second priority, which sums up the Christian walk of love. You are to meditate on Christ, who is our our example. Look at your text in chapter 5, verse 2. It says, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Here Paul shows us the kind of love we should have. We've already talked about it. We've already alluded to it. We should have a sacrificial love which looks like Christ's sacrificial love for us. He loved us by giving himself up for us. Clearly, Paul is referring to what Christ did by going to the cross to die for our sins. He gave himself up of his own initiative. Paul says much the same thing in Galatians 2.20. We saw the first part of this earlier. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This echoes the words of Jesus in John 10. You can turn there if you'd like. Listen to his words in John 10 verse 11. says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Verse 18. Again, this shows that the Lord gave His life willingly for us. 
verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, there's one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Friends, he did this so that we might receive the very righteousness of God. He was willing, our Lord Jesus was willing to leave heaven's glory and die on a bloody cross, becoming sin, so that sinners might become the righteousness of God in him. Beloved, this is true love. True love. This is sacrificial love. He bore the wrath. He bore the wrath of the Father so that we could become beloved children of God. At this point in the text, Paul goes on to tell us the quality of Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 2 again. Ephesians 5, 2. If you're still in John. It's an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Clearly, Paul is referring to again to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It is Christ's supreme sacrifice of himself. That, that supreme sacrifice is the ultimate demonstration of his love. In Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, the writer states that Christ is the blameless high priest who needed no sacrifices like the other high priest, so he offered himself once and for all. Just listen to that text. It says, For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. I want you to listen. You can turn there if you'd like to Hebrews 10. It's a rather lengthy chapter, but or a passage, but I think it's worth listening to as we consider the sacrifice of Christ and what he accomplished. Look at verse one, Hebrews ten one. For the law, since it is only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 8. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come. This is our Lord. I have come to do your will. That's the will of the Father. He takes away the first, first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Beloved, that is, that is what happens. That is what happened at the cross, is that our Lord Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, came and sacrificed Himself once and for all. He didn't have to keep doing it. Like the, like the priest. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And by the way, according to Ephesians, you are there as well. You've been raised up and seated with him in the heavenlies. Verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, does he not? For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, said the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. You have been given the mind of Christ. He then says, verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds. I want you to get this. I want you to get this, especially if you struggle with assurance of salvation. Verse 17, remember, this we're talking about the quality of the sacrifice of Christ. And it says in verse 17, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Do you believe? Do you believe? Verse 18, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done. It's done. done. Church, on a little lighter side, as most of you know, we now live in what's called the cancel culture. You can and will get called out on social media if you've done anything questionable in your life and it comes to light, especially if you're in a position, a public position. Just yesterday, a candidate for the U.S. Senate was accused of wearing an off-colored Halloween costume at some point in the past. 
Now, I don't know about you, who knows what sort of costume I may have worn years ago. I don't know. Uh, You might show me a picture and go, "I, I guess I remember that. Yet, this is the kind of thing that will get you canceled in today's culture. You see, mankind, we always want to dig up other folks' past transgressions. We want to go back and we want to put those past transgressions on display for everybody to see. Did you know that as those who are in Christ, you see, we've been a part of the original cancel culture. 2,000 years. This is a cancel culture of real significance. Ironically, while the modern cancel culture does its best to remember the sins of your past, the true cancel culture completely cancels those sins. If you don't believe me, listen to this. Paul writes in Colossians 1, verse 13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What he accomplished on the cross. Friends, if you are in Christ, your certificate of debt has been canceled. He nailed it to the cross. You see, that's true love. That's sacrificial love. As Paul writes in Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe that to be true? If you, again, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, If you're here today and you struggle in this way, I want to remind you of the effectiveness, of the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ. Beloved, if you are in Christ, nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing, do I need to say that again? Nothing can separate you from His love. Martin Luther says this, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters in our own hands. Beloved, you can trust. You can trust the work of Christ. As we close, listen to John 15. It says, this is my, 15:12. this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Beloved, if you are in Christ... 
your transgressions have been forgiven. And in forgiving you, Christ has shown His great love toward you. Now let's round this out. Going back to chapter 4, verse 32, and, and now 5, 1, and 2. The question is, are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to show the same type of sacrificial love toward God and toward others? That's the call. That's the call that Paul was calling, that's what Paul was calling the church at Ephesus to. And dare I say, that is the type of love that God is calling Grace Bible Church, Gainesville, to. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that you would use it. We know the promises that it will not return void. Father, I pray for those who are not here this morning. pray that you would be with them, comfort them. Lord, I pray that the church would reach out to them. Father, I pray that our church would walk in sacrificial, true sacrificial love that reflects Christ as our example. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.